Sport has always played a big role in Czech life. At the time of the national revival in the 19th century, the so-called gymnastics movement was founded on the idea that a healthy body was a recipe not only for a healthy mind, but also for a civilized nation. In this episode of our series Drawing from the Archives, we hear recordings from the huge Sokol gatherings of 1938 and from the Spartakiada displays of mass calisthenics that replaced Sokol during the communist period. We also feature an ice hockey report from the Olympics in 1936, as well as Europe's first ever live football commentary and the voices of some of the great Czech sportsmen and women of the 20th century, from Emil Zatopek to Martina Navratilova. This special report was prepared by my colleague David Vaughan. An unforgettable moment in the history of Czech sport. Petr Svoboda scores the winning goal against Russia in the ice hockey final of the 1998 Winter Olympics in Japan, as commented live by Czech radio's Aleš Procházka. The final whistle blew, and the Czechs had won an Olympic tournament packed with top NHL players. Over 60 years earlier, Czech listeners were also able to enjoy live hockey commentary from the Winter Olympics in 1936. That year they were held in the Bavarian ski resort of Garmisch-Partenkirchen. The legendary Czech radio sports reporter Josef Laufel was there, and his commentary of the Czechoslovak semi-final against Great Britain still survives in our archives. The game got underway, and straight away the Czechs went on to the attack with an early shot blocked by the British goalie. A handful of Czech and Slovak fans cheered. Josef Laufer was joined in the commentary box by the Canadian one-time player and hockey writer Bob Bowman, and from time to time they would exchange a few words in English. A few minutes into the first period, both agreed that neither team was looking very convincing. Well, it's not too exciting yet, is it? No, it's not really yet. Mr. Bowman, no. so we shall wait another few minutes and then you may express your opinion. Pozor, teď máme nebezpečný útok Angličanů a už je branka do cíle na jejich pravým cílem DVM. As fate would have it, at that very moment Jerry Davy scored for Britain. The slide had begun and the final score on that February evening in 1936 was 5-0 in Britain's favour. While the Czechs ended up in fourth place, Britain went on to win gold although in fact almost all the British players had lived and played in Canada for most of their lives. Ten years earlier, Josef Laufer had the honour of making Europe's first live football commentary, when in October 1926 he commentated on a match at Prague's Letna Stadium between Slavia Prague and Hungaria Budapest. At the time, he wasn't a radio journalist at all, but the reporter had failed to turn up, and he was the only person around willing to have a try. Later, he recalled how the radio director, who was not a football fan, decided to switch off the broadcast at the end of the first half. The listeners didn't get to find out how the game ended, Laufer remembers. They were given music instead. But they knew what they wanted and bombarded the radio with so many requests 
that football was back on the airwaves the very next Sunday. And once again, with me at the microphone. The director of Radio Journal phoned Laufer with an embarrassed apology, and this time agreed to broadcast the second half too. Sport had been part of the Czech national revival in the 19th century, resulting in the foundation of the Sokol movement in the 1860s, the word Sokol meaning falcon. The idea was to use physical exercise to build a sense of patriotism, and there were regular Sokol gatherings. In the early summer of 1938, an unprepared visitor would have found it hard to find a hotel in Prague. Tens of thousands of people from dozens of countries, including Yugoslavia, France and the United States, had come together in the city for the 10th International Sokol Gathering. Sokol took its inspiration from ancient Greece, but in 1938, the event also had more than a hint of pan-Slav solidarity in the face of an increasingly aggressive Nazi Germany. At the vast Strahov Stadium, literally tens of thousands of people engaged in simultaneous gymnastic displays. Czechoslovak Radio was there, reporting live on the events as they happened. An enthusiastic announcer describes the scene. He introduces listeners to one of the thousands of Czech Americans who crossed the Atlantic, especially for the event, Louise Hersom from St. Louis, Missouri. We are really excited, she told the reporter, speaking Czech with just a hint of an American accent. We'd love to embrace all our brothers here, she added, and those who had to stay at home. One outsider who witnessed the Sokol gathering was Jay Scott, a visitor from Scotland. We were fortunate enough to see the last part of the Sokol demonstrations, and they made a great impression on us. For example, the elaborate preparatory work involved, which produced such perfection in action then the fact that it is all voluntary and spontaneous, and then the widespread interest and enthusiasm evoked. In Scotland, we can muster an enormous crowd for an important football match, but your so-called crowd beats ours hollow. 
some people, like this Irish visitor Andrew Byrne, sounded a bit overwhelmed by the whole thing. Those costumes passed along the street, they do strike the Western visitor as rather highly coloured. But in time, the eye accustoms itself to the high colouring and you get the details, the beautiful embroideries, the uh, harmonisation of colouring, the manner in which the design of the clothing has been made to fit. For instance, the trousers and the long skirt and the small jacket. Yeah. All these things have been made to harmonise in such a way that you get the 20th century as against a Greek background. Andrew Byrne, talking there in the summer of 1938. Less than a year later, the Czech lands were occupied and the Sokol movement was banned. It was revived immediately after the war, but the Sokol gathering of 1948 was to be the last for many years. When the communists came to power, Sokol was seen as part of the bourgeois social order and was soon banned yet again. Instead, they staged their own spectacular calisthenics displays in honour of the Communist Party. The first so-called Spartakiada, named after the Spartacus uprising of slaves in ancient Rome, was held in 1955 to mark the 10th anniversary of Czechoslovakia's liberation by the Red Army. A million gymnasts took part, with a total audience of two million. Among the guests was the French artist Fernand Léger, who was enchanted by the whole thing, telling Czechoslovak radio, My God, I have found a land of people well-fed and full of joy. Spartakiada was then held every five years, with the exception of 1970 when it was cancelled amidst fears of protests against the Soviet-led invasion two years earlier. By 1980, the regime had firmly reasserted its authority, and the Spartakiada in July of that year was once again on a grand scale. Choreographed to the last detail, it opened with a series of deafening salvos, as President Gustav Husak took his place on the Tribune of Honour at Prague's packed Strahov Stadium. The gates opened and thousands of young gymnasts began to stream onto the field. The radio commentator waxed lyrical. The standard bearers are followed by girls in snow-white leotards and free-flowing long skirts, each bearing a bouquet of red flowers. Girls as beautiful as brides, so graceful that the goddesses of ancient Greece guarding the sacred Olympic flame would have envied them. For months, tens of thousands of people of all generations had been getting ready for the event, practicing songs and synchronized gymnastics. Ano, leva, prava, leva, prava, spievajú si ti malí žiačikova, 
Yes, left, right, left, right, sing the little children. Over 117,000 children from four to eight years old and hailing from all ends of the Republic have been practicing this song. They wouldn't all fit into the stadium, so we have just 3,840 children from in and around Prague here. And they're all marching beautifully in time, in neat rows of four, with their comrade teachers beside them in yellow tops and little white skirts. The event went on for several days, during which Prague virtually ground to a halt. The next Spartakiada was in 1985, and preparations were well underway for another in 1990, an event that was hastily cancelled with the fall of communism. But ten years earlier, at the time of the 1980 Moscow Olympics, the communists were still very much in power. Part of the American response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 was a boycott of the event, joined by dozens of other Western countries. A few weeks before the Games began, Czechoslovak Radio broadcast an edition of its regular feature Spectrum, condemning the boycott. This is short-term politics. Not only does it damage the Olympic Games, but the whole Olympic movement. The main victims of this campaign by the American president are the athletes themselves. And Czechoslovak Radio's correspondent in New York, Michal Stash, sent a dispatch quoting several American athletes who opposed the boycott as well as one of the senior American Olympic officials, former decathlete Bob Mathias. Our position is we should have the games in Moscow, let's beat the heck out of them, and, uh, and let the politicians do something else politically. At this point, the English fades under the translation, although the correspondent is careful to leave out the bit about beating the heck out of them. On July the 19th, 1980, a spectacular opening ceremony took place in Moscow, with Czechoslovak radio reporting live as the Olympic torch was lit. Czechoslovakia sent over 200 athletes, who came home with 14 medals, including two golds. The final of the football at the Lenin Stadium was between Czechoslovakia and the 1976 champions East Germany. And that was the moment in the 78th minute when Jindřich Svoboda scored the winning goal that earned him the nickname the Golden Foot. Kicked in right after he'd nearly headed the ball past the East German keeper. He later joked that he could have become the Golden Head. Politics continued to beset the Summer Olympics and four years later in 1984 it was tit for tat as the communist countries boycotted the Games in Los Angeles. At that time, the shot-putter Helena Fibingerova, who had won bronze in 1976, told Czechoslovak radio that she was heartbroken to be staying at home. But she also added, 
I share the view of our Olympic Committee because in certain circles an abnormal situation has emerged which threatens the purity of the Olympic spirit and we all need to understand this. 8 years later, following the end of the Cold War, the Olympics in Barcelona in 1992 were the first in two decades to be boycott-free. They were also the last to include Czechoslovakia as a single country. The Cold War had a huge impact on the careers of many top Czechoslovak sportsmen and women. An example was the great Czech runner Emil Zatopek. In 1952, the Summer Olympics were held in the Finnish capital Helsinki and Zatopek was one of the heroes of the Games. Despite his extraordinary style, with his face contorted, his head and torso swinging, and emitting sounds that earned him the nickname of the Czech locomotive, he went to Helsinki having already twice broken the world record over 20 kilometres. His dream at the Olympics was to win two gold medals, in the 5,000 and 10,000 metres. Czechoslovak radios Bohus Ujček and Vítězslav Mokros were there to report on the event. The excitement was enormous as Zatopek pulled ahead in the final few hundred metres and steamed across the line, breaking the Olympic record in the process. Four days later, on July the 24th, 1952, came the 5,000 metres final. This race was even more dramatic, and the excitement of the two radio reporters reached an even higher pitch as Zatopek surged ahead from fourth to first place in a dramatic last lap that saw Britain's Christopher Chataway fall as his foot caught on the kerb. Once again, Emil Zatopek had won gold and broken the Olympic record, but it had been a tough race. I decided to try for a break in the last lap, he told reporters, so I spurted ahead, which the others weren't expecting. By the time they'd seen what was happening, I'd got ahead in time for the last spurt before the finishing line, and so I won it. But this wasn't all. At the Helsinki Olympics, Zatopek also ran what was, amazingly, his first ever marathon. That was just three days later, on July the 27th. The Olympic fanfare sounded as the leading athlete entered the stadium for the final few hundred metres. No prizes for guessing who was in front. And the reporter describes how Emil Zatopek smiles as he collapses across the line. He had won an astonishing three gold medals, each time breaking the Olympic record. Afterwards, he described in English the moment of winning the marathon. I was frightened that I will collapse or something. One kilometer later, I stood alone. It was a great surprise for me. 
without drinking or eating, I, I ran till the stadium. Only the tape saved me that I did not collapse. At the time, Emil Zatopek sympathized with the new political order in Czechoslovakia. But 16 years later, he openly condemned the Soviet invasion of the country in August 1968. As a punishment, he was made to work in a uranium mine, and it was many years before he was to be rehabilitated. He died on November the 21st, 2000, at the age of 78, and his funeral was attended by the president of the International Olympic Committee, Juan Antonio Samaranch, who described him as the embodiment of the Olympic spirit. The year is 1984, and Ivan Lendl plays the winning point against John McEnroe in the final of the French Open in Paris, one of eight Grand Slam singles titles in his career. The 1970s and 80s were a period of huge tennis success in Czechoslovakia, and the country put considerable resources into the sport. Unlike most of their compatriots, the country's top tennis players were able to travel round the world, and when Czechoslovak radio caught up with the 19-year-old Lendl just before Christmas 1979, it was during one of his rare trips back home. This year I'm spending Christmas with my family for the second year, but before that I was in Florida, three years running. And the interviewer asks him whether being able to travel around the world makes him appreciate home more. I think so, Landl replies. I always look forward to coming home. But it was only a few years later that Ivan Lendl ended up leaving his home for good. His relations with the Czechoslovak Sport Federation got gradually increasingly tense, especially after he took part in a controversial tennis tournament in apartheid South Africa in 1983. In 1986, he moved permanently to the United States, and since 1992, he has been an American citizen. The other great Czech tennis name of that generation was, of course, Martina Navratilova, who dominated the women's game throughout the 1980s and 90s. She emigrated to the United States back in 1975 when she was still only 19, saying that she found the political atmosphere of the Czechoslovak Tennis Federation stifling. A few years later, Navratilova found herself playing against her former homeland here in Prague in 1986, helping the United States to Fed Cup victory over Czechoslovakia. But after that, it was to be almost exactly 20 years before she was to play a tournament here again, this time under very different circumstances, with the old Cold War tensions long forgotten. <laughs> yes, I expected exactly what I got, which was uh, lots of uh, respect, lots of love. And most of all, I think people enjoyed the way I played the game. That was Martina Navratilova talking after her opening game in the doubles of the Prague Open in 2006, in front of what she herself described as a home crowd. She told Radio Prague about her feelings at that moment. Uh, it was you know, nerve-wracking coming out and uh, trying to hold my own in front of a very uh, happy and expectant crowd. When I when I w walked out there and people were cheering so much, I had to really concentrate on. Uh, I had to do something, keep myself busy because if I just really, you want to soak it up, but at the same time you have to win the match. It's not like you're just performing; you need to win. <laughs> so, uh, 
you have to uh, sort of keep yourself busy and, and concentrate on um, on the task at hand, which is winning the match. So then you sort of break it down and say, okay, what do I have to do? And you can't get too nostalgic because then you probably uh, wouldn't be able to walk. For most of my life I've played in front of a crowd that was pulling for the other guy because I was number one and so I never felt at home. Even playing in the States, they really started cheering me on uh, at the end of my career. So now, you know, I, I get the crowd on my side pretty much everywhere I go. But it would have been nice to have, have been able to play here more. But that's how it goes. So I'm just thankful that I'm still here now and um, enjoying every minute of it. I started this program with the most popular of all Czech sports, ice hockey, and that's where I'll end. One of the best-loved sports commentators of the last 50 years was Karel Malina, and he was greatly missed when he died in 2015. Here he remembers the 1947 Ice Hockey World Championships, which were hosted by Prague. The national team was not on form, and they had lost in their group against Sweden. Their only chance of winning was in the unlikely event that the ice hockey minnows Austria should beat the Swedes in their last game. As we hear, sometimes miracles do happen. Já si právě vzpomínám, že naši hokejisté prohráli ve skupině se Švédy a už vlastně nemohli být mistry světa. I remember that our hockey team had lost against the Swedes and to all intents and purposes their chances of becoming world champions were written off. But on Sunday morning Sweden was playing Austria. The Swedes were hot favourites. All they needed was to win to become world champions. Of course, everyone assumed that they would win, but something unbelievable happened. The Austrians beat them 2-1, and this opened the path for us, because that evening we were playing our last game against the Americans. What happened in Prague after the Austria-Sweden game? Well, you just won't believe it. Our reporters, Prochaska, Mashonka and Laufer, were commenting the game live on the radio to every household. At the end of the game, even the cinemas interrupted their show, with news that we still had a chance of becoming world champions. Immediately the cinemas were empty, as everyone rushed to the ice rink to try to get tickets for the final. In the National Theatre, a performance of the opera Rigoletto was underway, and the opera singer Tain, who was in the main role, when he heard the Austrians had beaten Sweden, he sang the next aria something like this. I have to inform you that the Austrians have beaten the Swedes 2-1 and we can still be champions. Suddenly, the whole theatre burst into a huge round of applause. In the evening, Czechoslovakia played against the United States and we won. We became world champions. But that wasn't quite the end of it all. The next day, the director of the National Theatre, the famous actor Vidra, wrote Tyne a note which said, Dear Tyne, I have never encountered anything like your behaviour in all my years at the National Theatre. I fine you 200 crowns. I don't think it bothered Tyne at all. He was delighted that he brought so much pleasure to so many people.